I want to talk today for a little bit about the most powerful force in the world. The most powerful force in the world is love. Law can punish. Law can alter external behavior out of fear of loss or hope of gain. The law can have some effect upon conduct. But only the spirit of the loving God can change the heart. For as a man thinketh in his heart, the Bible says, so is he. Jesus came to change the human heart. I suppose the first time I can recollect experiencing what I would define as the power of love uh, to change your life happened to me in 1938 in the sixth grade. I was 12 years old. Now, I went to school like all of my contemporaries at that time. We had tennis shoes. They didn't cost what tennis shoes cost now. We had those $3 kids. You know, remember those? Well, they worked just about as well, I think. Anyway, and uh, go off to school. And we'd, we nearly all walked to school. We'd meet at corners and stuff and didn't live too far away, and we would walk to school. I remember going there one day, first, uh, wasn't the first day of school, we were out in the middle of the term, but the first period, first class, and I got there at my seat, and I got everything kind of arranged, and was kind of checking out the room, and I noticed there was a different atmosphere in the room that day. I couldn't figure out what it was. Some of my friends who were usually talking were acting very civil, uh, very good, they were paying attention to the teacher, not the usual sort of raucous behavior that some of my friends participated in and I always cautioned them and tried to, <laughs> tried to calm them down, correct them. And I, for the life of me, couldn't figure out what it was that had brought such a change of atmosphere over that classroom. I started looking around and suddenly I saw it. She had transferred into our school. Her family had moved to Dallas from another city and there about three rows over from me was without a doubt the most gorgeous, beautiful, red-headed woman I've ever laid my eyes on in my life. I was dumbstruck. I couldn't take my eyes off of her. All the guys in that class were sensitive to the fact that the beauty queen of all time had arrived in our class. The teacher would ask a question and I'd raise my hand. I didn't know the question, didn't know the answer. I'd raise my hand. Uh, on Friday afternoons after class in the junior high school I attended in Dallas, J.L. Long, some person heard me say that once and they thought I was saying J.L. Long, J-A-I-L-L-O-N-G. Well, I felt it was that way sometimes. But it was J initial, J.L. Long Junior High School. Friday afternoons they'd have a dance in the gymnasium. 
And uh, sometimes we'd go, sometimes we wouldn't. But that Friday, all of us went. We all went and we had on, I, I got, let me tell you what happened in my house. I got up the first time my dad called me the next day. He didn't have to remind me three times. My mother didn't have to come in there and say, get out of bed, it's time for school. I was out at the first call. I got in there and I got dressed up. I, I got on these slick bottom shoes that I usually wore only to Sunday school and church. You know, you saved, you had school children, you had uh, school shoes and then you had Sunday shoes. Boy, I put on the Sunday shoes. I got all dressed up. I've always had a lot of hair, more then than I do now. It's always been kind of wiry. But I got in there and I got in front of that mirror and I got a double dose of Brill cream and I put that stuff on me. I looked like Steven Seagal. I had that stuff. It, it just ripped off of there. It's 20 weight Brill cream. Put it there on my head. You could have polished your car with all the stuff I had on, on my head. I could have slid under the door just like that. Oh, boy. And I went to school. And uh, that, that Friday afternoon came, and boy, I was all dressed up fit to kill. And we got in the gym, and you know how you did in those days. All the boys would get on one side of the gym, and all the others. It looked like the North versus the South in the Civil War. We were standing there looking at those girls, and they were standing over there looking at us. And finally, I got up enough nerve. I saw that red-headed, beautiful red-headed woman, 12 years old. What a marvelous creature she was. And I said, I, my heart was beating so fast. I went over, and I asked her to dance, and we danced. And I walked with her to her home. She lived over on Victor Street, just about two blocks away. And I walked home with her, and... Uh, I want you to know that every day, every day, I got up with a different purpose in life. I got up with one thing in mind, and that was that redheaded little girl that seated, was seated about three rows over from me. It changed, that experience of love changed my life. You say, oh, Buckner, that's kind of silly. We've all had experiences like that. That's just puppy love. I know that. But when it happens, it's real to the puppy. And it was real to me. And uh, my, you remember that song, my walk will be different, my talk and my name, nothing about me is going to be the same. Do you remember that? That was me. And uh, that started a love affair that went on. Well, let's see, that was in 1938. It went on for nearly two weeks. But during that time, I was a model student, never caused any problems in class, did my homework, was dressed like I'd just gotten out of a bandbox. It was something else. Love had changed my life. Love will change your life. You know what happens when you fall in love? A number of things, simple things. It's happened to all of us. One of the things that happens is when you fall in love with somebody, you want to be with them. Don't you? You want to be with them. When you love somebody, you want to talk to them. And you want them to talk to you. When you love somebody, you like to read 
what they write to you. We used to write notes in class and pass them between periods. Did any of you do that? You had a retarded school life if you didn't. <laughs> oh, we'd pass these notes around. You get to the next class and you, you'd read those notes. You want to read what someone you love and whom you think loves you. Um, you want to read what they have written. And then you want to give them a gift. You want to give them a gift. That's what you've been getting. That's what I got today, a little Valentine. And when you love somebody, you want to tell other people about it. How wonderful she is. How beautiful she is. How terrific he is. How kind he is. Love always talks about the beloved. It isn't a real big step from that kind of love to the divine kind of love that God came. God who first loved us and he got all dressed up in a human body and came to a carpenter's shop because he wanted to meet you. And he wants to talk to you and to me because he loves us. And he wants us to talk to him because we love him. And as the Bible says, we love God because God first loved us. He took the initiative. He came to us. And when we realized that we were loved, loved unconditionally, loved eternally, that we were loved, it changed our life and is changing our lives. We want to be with him. We want to talk to him. We want him to talk to us. We want to read what he's written. For this book is God's great love letter to mankind. When you love him because he first loved us, you want to read what he has written. When you love somebody, you want to give something to you. Well, you love God. You don't have to be told by the preacher to give. You don't have to read another Sunday school lesson on stewardship. If you love, you give. It's the nature of love to give. And when you love somebody, you talk about them. You tell other people how wonderful they are. And I fell in love in a totally different and new and profound way on August 31st, 1946 when I realized that God loved me. And God gave his free grace, forgiveness to me. That I was loved by the eternal God who loved me, not in spite of my problems, but because of them. He loved me. And the realization of that changed my life. And that's been, what? Not two weeks. 46 or so years ago. 
And the love is deeper and finer and happier than it has ever been. And so I want to talk about him for a few moments this morning. Jesus came to give us a gift, the gift of himself. Now imagine for a moment that you own a piece of property. It is clear of all debt. It is totally yours. You own a piece of property. It is yours, exclusively yours. And I come to you and say, I have given you a million dollars in crisp $1,000 bills. I have given you a million dollars and it is here on your property. And it's out there in the middle of the pasture under a rock. And all you have to do is to take my word that that million dollars is there and go out there and turn over that rock and it's yours. It's yours to enjoy, it's yours to spend, it's yours to give, it's yours to use. It's a gift. It's already there. And all you have to do is to take my word for it and at least go turn the rock over and accept the gift. You do not have to believe before you get the gift. You do not have to have faith before you get the gift. Faith is not a work that produces the gift. Faith is a response to the loving God who says, I've already given it to you. Take it. It's free. It's yours. It's on your property. And you can sit here and think about it. You can theologize about it. You can have conferences about it. You can talk about it. You can do all of that and still miss the gift. But I'm not going to take it away. And what it means to be lost is that you are lost because you have not acted in faith upon the promise I have made and the provision that I have given to you because faith doesn't secure it, it only appropriates it. It's already there. And God has come to say, I have placed something, embryonic potential in your heart and in your life, right in the center of it, in your heart. I've placed the gift of eternal life. And all you have to do is walk into the center of your own heart and look there and you'll see a rock. And the rock has a cross on it. Because you see, that gift of life and of love and of salvation and forgiveness, that gift has been bequeathed to you whether you accept it or not because my son died for you. 
He loved you so much that he gave his life for you. And in his last will and testament, known to most of us as the New Testament, he says, I will this to you. I give this to you. I bequeath this to you. It's there. It's potential. It's possible. All you have to do is have the faith to say, I accept it. Listen to Paul write about it. For while we were helpless, other translations say helpless, powerless sinners. For while we were still helpless, fifth chapter of Romans, sixth verse. Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man. Though perhaps for the good man, some would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. We're still sinners. We'll never stop being sinners. Becoming a Christian doesn't mean that you are perfect and sinless. That will never happen. But it does mean we have received the incomparable gift of God's love and God's grace. And our motive for living will be changed. The love that is created in our hearts in a response to his initiative and love will create a whole new attitude about the living of life, about doing what is right and noble and fine. We'll take that gift that he has given to us in Christ and like that million dollars buried on your property, he wants us to accept the gift of his love and enjoy it. Celebrate it. Spend it for the good of others and the glory of God. Use your life as a witness to others that on their property, in their heart, like in yours, he has planted the gift of life. Look at the cross, turn it over, and accept the gift. Do not postpone it. Do not look upon it casually. For we are warned and encouraged by Paul in 2 Corinthians, 5th chapter, beginning with the 17th verse. Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away, behold, behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God. All these things, this gift, this grace, this forgiveness, all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. We have been reconciled to God because God came to us and we responded. We have been reconciled to God through his grace. I want you to notice, remember this, in all of your Bible study and all of your Bible reading, nowhere Nowhere in the Bible does the scripture say that God needs to be reconciled to us. Not once. 
Religion tries to get God to be reconciled to us. And that's why religion basically is an enemy of Christianity. It's a contradiction of Christianity. For religion says what you've got to do is do certain things, make certain offerings, burn certain sacrifices on the altar, do certain things in this life to suffer. You have got to overcome the reluctance of God to love you. You have got to get God to be reconciled to you before you can be reconciled to him. Not so, God never left. God never turned his back on us. God never walked away. We left, we turned our backs upon him. We ignored it, we postponed it, we delayed it. And we are the ones that need to be reconciled to God. God has come to get us to be reconciled to him. And then he has turned us who have come to him into reconciling agents to bring the whole world into a knowledge of the son of God. That's the church, that's what the church, that's its primary ministry. The primary ministry of the church is proclaiming the grace of God. The ministry of the church is not judgment. Judgment needs to be done in our world. It needs to be done through individuals, as Paul tells us in the 13th chapter of Romans, that are ordained of God to keep the public law, to keep the peace for those who do not keep it because of a changed heart. But the church's job is not judgment. The church's job is not rulemaking. The church's job is not inflicting punishment. The church's one primary exclusive ministry is to announce the love and grace of God for everybody. We are to be reconciling agents, reconciling the world to him. Namely, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Boy, isn't that a great statement. God doesn't keep accounts. God is not some celestial CPA. Keeping an account of our trespasses. When we accept him, when we love him back, who first loved us, all of that's obliterated and abolished. He doesn't keep an account of them, not counting their sins against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors We're in love with him and we go around talking about him. We are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were entreating through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. That's what we do. That's what I'm trying to do. That's what this church is trying to do. What every Sunday school teacher is endeavoring to do, to call people to Christ, to be reconciled to God who loves you and has planted the potential of eternal life within your heart if you'll only turn that cross over and accept Christ right in the center of your life. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And working together, listen, with him, we also urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Boy, that statement has captured me. Wasted grace. Wasted grace. Do not receive the grace of God in vain. What does that mean? Uselessly. 
Hala, the word vain, synonyms, dictionary definitions. No substance, no purpose. Do not receive the grace of God in vain. Don't take this great gift that God has given us and that by faith we have accepted it and then not use it. Use your talents and your abilities and your time and your effort and your influence and your money to use it all for the glory of God. Don't live in vain. God said that way back in the Ten Commandments, didn't he? You remember that one commandment? Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. A lot of people think that means you're not supposed to curse. That's the last thing it means. It applies there, but that's not the primary meaning of that verse of Scripture at all. We touched on this in that series I preached on the Ten Commandments. Let me repeat it again. That verse really says, you will not bear the name of the Lord your God in vain. You bear the name of God's people. Don't do it uselessly. I bear the name Christian. May it not be in vain, useless, empty, no substance, no purpose. Don't let the grace of God that he has planted in the very center of your heart as a free gift and that has been accepted by you because you've opened up to him and he's filled your heart and your life. Do not serve him in vain. Here's an unforgettable picture of a man who wasted grace. He lived on Cape Cod in the 18th century and his name was John Barnstable. He loved the Bible, deeply devoted to scripture. But apparently grace was wasted on him. Let me read you a part of his will. John Barnstable bequeathed to his wife for her lifetime to use and improve, to the use and improvement of a slave woman, Dinah. If at the death of my wife, Dinah be still living, I desire my executors to sell her and to use the money for which she is sold to purchase Bibles and distribute them equally among my wife's and my grandchildren. A human being, a child of God, a sister in Christ, sold like a sack of potatoes to give Bibles. Wasted. Grace. Paul admonishes us. Work together with Christ. We urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Friends, we have a great gift. Individually and collectively as a church, we have been blessed incomparably. We must not Live and work and worship in vain.
They printed a new Bible at one of the Bible publishing houses a number of years ago. And they could not decide on how to bind it. What sort of binding to put it in. Whether to put it in, uh, in leather or in some sort of uh, synthetic or in paper or whatever. Uh, Bibles are bound in. All kinds of things now. But they were having a very heated discussion during the board meeting of this Bible society. As to how they would cover the new Bible that they had printed. Big argument. Bad spirit. At one point, a very respected man, a member of the society, got up and walked up to the front where they had a bunch of those unbound Bibles on the table. He walked up there beside the table and picked up one of those unbound Bibles. And he picked it up and he said, ladies and gentlemen, I have a recommendation to make. I move that we bind this Bible in shoe leather, yours and mine. And walk it out in daily life. That's gospel. I make that recommendation to myself and to you, my brothers and sisters in Christ and in this church. Let's bind this book in our shoe leather. The Nun Bush edition, the Florsham edition, the Reebok edition. I don't care what it is, as long as it's yours. And you walk it out, and I walk it out, and together we walk it out in daily life. God save us from the peril of wasted grace. And God save anyone here today from the peril of refusing to turn over the rock. And accept the gift. It's there. You don't beg for it. You don't earn it. You can't buy it. You cannot be saved by the law. Only by grace. And it's planted in your heart. Embrace it. Accept it. Be reconciled to God. Through faith in Jesus Christ. Would you come this morning to trust him, to join this church, to move your letter, or to come make a decision for Christ and join another church? If that's your preference, we'll help you to do that. The most important thing is that you trust Christ, accept him, follow him, and let grace be the guiding principle in your living. Come to rededicate your life if God so impresses you.